Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Illustration Department podcast. My name is Giuseppe Castellano. In this podcast, I talk to folks in illustration, graphic design, publishing, animation, and other creative fields about their beginnings, their successes, and the bumps and bruises they've experienced along the way. In this episode, my guest is Christopher Brown, Special Collections Curator for the Children's Literature Research Collection at the Free Library of Philadelphia. E.B. White said, A library is a good place to go when you feel bewildered or undecided, for there in a book, you may have your question answered. Among other topics, Christopher tells us how a little charm and the biggest lie helped him in becoming a librarian. We talk about who decides what books belong in a library, the publisher, the librarian, the reader, or someone else. And Christopher explains why he thinks revolutions are recorded in children's literature. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Are you from Philadelphia, by the way? I am not. No, I came to Philadelphia, um, let me see, it was 2005 to work at the Free Library. And I, I really thought I would be here for two years at the most. And, you know, I find myself now here with, uh, <laughs> you know, well, settled in completely. And that makes it uh, a pleasant surprise for me. Where are you from originally? Uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh. Yep. Have you been? I have been because my wife went to, to the University of Pittsburgh. Oh, really? When did she when did she graduate from the university? Ninety nine. So she and I missed each other. I think you got you. Know, she's a few years older. I graduated from high school where I went to uh, Shenley, which she may know, which was up the street from the university. Yeah. Uh, it's no longer there, but I spent you know, my, my teen years in Oakland. Yep. Um, yep. I don't remember the exact neighborhood. I knew that she could walk to school. Probably um, Squirrel Hill would be would be my guess because that's where a lot of students would have lived. Yeah, I know the street was Atwood Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I visited her and we went to the O, which which mm-hmm. was this uh, neutral. Some very very good fries. Yeah, oh my god, amazing fries! But it was also a neutral location for gangs. Did you know that? I you know no that's that's news to me that the O was just untouched like anyone could go in there and enjoy some salty potato treats <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that's what i i mean i didn't do the research or anything someone told me that and i just believed them so there's you know, i i want to believe it because there's something very quaint and very western pennsylvania about deciding that like potato based locations are sacrosanct and we can't <laughs> encourage violence yeah um, what led you to to the university of pittsburgh yeah, that's a really, really long. No, I went. Um, so I went to uh, the University of Pittsburgh for my master's in library science. At okay. that at that time, they had one of the one of the best programs in the country, and um, it was something that I kind of fell into. I don't I don't think a lot of people set out to become librarians. I think librarian is something that finds you. Uh-huh. Um, that's at least been my um, experience talking to a lot of people at conferences. The, the the short answer of it is that I I went I signed up to become a librarian because I had graduated from Penn State with an English degree and kind of looked around the world and said what am I supposed to do now um, and there there wasn't anything that was that was available or calling out or anything that just 
made sense in the way of like, oh, here, this is the next logical step for you. Right. Um, you know, before that, everything else is, is so logical. You go from grade school to high school, high school to college. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're like, what, what's the next step? Um, and I went through the classifieds uh, because, you know, we still use those back then. Oh, yeah. And um, I found an ad for a library assistant and I said, I can do this. So I charmingly talked my way into that job and I told him the biggest lie where I said, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about going on for my degree in library science. I had no plans whatsoever to do this. <laughs> and um, at that point, two weeks into working, I, my boss said, oh, how's your application coming? And I said, oh, you know, I don't really know if this is for me, but I love working here. So it's it's all cool, right? And she said something that was along the lines of, well, I just, I don't know if this is going to be a good fit for us then, if you're not going to be going to school for okay. librarianship. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, yeah, well, you know, just something I'm thinking about. I'm, I'm probably still going to apply. And then I rushed home and immediately did the application and sent it in that day. Because I thought I need to, I need to earn some money. <laughs> and then when I started going, I just realized that it was a, just a very fun and fulfilling career. Yeah. When did you? And so Philly was two thousand five. What before that was children's book uh, librarianship? Is that even the right way of saying that? I mean, was did you want to be a steward of children's books back then? Did or did you kind of stumble into? children's books kind of like no it it was i also stumbled into it i when i did my degree i went to uh become a health services librarian my goal was to work in a hospital and be one of the people who would um come in behind the doctor so that you know the doctor would diagnose you Mm. and you and your loved ones your family would kind of say okay so what next and usually there are a lot of major hospitals have a library where you can look up treatment options you can look up ideas you can see what, what the research says. And, um, no one was, was hiring for that when I, when I left. So I applied to Philadelphia because I thought, well, this will be a great way to get some experience on my resume and keep my hand in the game. And I'll just keep sending out applications. And as soon as I need to, I'll just break my lease and go. And I was assigned to become a children's librarian. I'd never taken any courses on, on working with children or, or anything. So I sent a very frantic email to all of the children's librarians who were professors at the University of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And I said, hi, you may remember me, probably not. I was not in your class. Can I please have a copy of your syllabus? <laughs> I spent the next six months kind of re-going through the library school education from the children's side. Mm-hmm. And I signed up for online classes through the American Library Association to learn a little bit more about it. And I had an opportunity maybe maybe about six months after I came to Philadelphia. And they said, you know, we have an opening in the adult department. Do you want to switch? And I said, not a chance because I was I was having too much fun. I, I assume children's books had some place in your life prior to that. They did. I, I, my, my father was, uh, he taught, um, art both, uh, first in high school and then in college when I was a little bit older, uh, I taught art history. So, you know, the arts were always something that was very important to us and you can't pick up a picture book 
a really good one and not be impressed by the conversation that's taking place between the author and the illustrator. Mm-hmm. And I really valued that. I, I immediately fell in love with, you know, there were some, some beautiful picture books. I still remember um, Chris Van Ellsberg was, was top of my list. I thought that he was creating these almost artist books, mass produced artist books in the way they were, they were designed. The, the mysteries of Harris Burdick was probably was and still is one of my absolute favorites. And as I went through, there were, there were more and more things that I just thought, wow, there are some illustrators that are really, really advancing the narrative in ways that were unexpected. Mm-hmm. When my kids were very little and we were decorating their you know, baby rooms and stuff, I just took the Mysteries of Harris Burdick, scanned a bunch of pages, printed them out and framed them because they were just so unbelievably beautiful and magical and mystical and mysterious. And I mean, that, that book is a book I came into way later in life as a parent, mm-hmm. not as a, a reader. I was definitely not a reader, definitely not into children's books before I even got into college. Um, and even then I was kind of aware because there were classes called children's book illustration. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until I got into the job world that children's books became you know, something that I'm just, it's just an absolute endless source of joy. But anyway, yeah, that's just sort of an, it, as an aside. It's no, it's, it's pure magic. It was uh, the only fan letter I've ever written was as an adult. And I was in my late twenties, maybe early thirties at that point. And I wrote to Chris Van Ellsberg and I told him how much I loved that book yeah. and um, how I was, I was using it. Um, I was in Northeast Philadelphia at that point. There was a, there's a beautiful little library called the Longcrest branch. And uh, I, w- I was using that with the kids where we were doing creative writing assignments where um, I made photocopies of the pages and um, put them onto transparency paper and put them up on an overhead projector and would project them against the wall and just, you know, let's take 40 minutes and write a story based on any one of these. Mm-hmm. So I was telling him about this and um, the publishing house that I sent it to, I don't know if he ever saw the letter or not, probably not, but uh, they sent me back a very, very nice signed poster and it's still hanging uh, in our house. Where's um, Where's the house? Are you in Philly proper or are we, you outside of it? Yes, we're we're in South Philadelphia um, in the Graduate Hospital area. I just I just moved actually, and um, as we're sitting and having our conversation, I'm surrounded by boxes. Um, <laughs> and I'm have like a throne of hoarding that I'm sitting on, made out of nice. U-Haul containers. It's yeah. yeah, we moved here. That I that is a very recent um, experience for me. We moved here. I'm not from. I I'm actually outside of Philly if you can say an hour away outside of Philly, which people do. So I'm going to go ahead and say that, but I'm not from this area. I'm from Baltimore originally moved to New York, lived there for 20 years with my wife, had Mm -hmm. a bunch of kids. And then we moved down here a bit ago, surrounded by boxes. And Mm -hmm. there are still, I don't know how, how you guys play it, but we're, we still have boxes. There are still boxes in certain areas, our closet, our utility room, that are just like, yeah, I'll get, I'll get to unpacking that in a minute. I mean, there's nothing in there that we need. I, I, I would like to say we're being that slow, but my, my partner, Jonathan, is a, uh, he's a taskmaster, and we have a date on the calendar that we are going to be completely unpacked by. Um, and it's, 
it's uh, it's quickly coming up. We have about two weeks left, yeah. so there's a there's a scurry. But in yeah. a way, it's kind of it's kind of freeing to think of. You know, you you go to your normal day of work. You come home. You have to unpack two boxes. You have to find places for things. Mm-hmm. Um, we're on a first name basis with everyone at Goodwill at this point because awesome. we've made so many trips. Mm-hmm. You know, they they see our car coming, and you can you could see the eye rolls and the shoulder sag. Because <laughs> we're bringing so much more stuff. Yeah, I, I have to say, I mean, the move from New York to Philly or to the Burbs, um, I was excited about it. I was a little nervous about it because, you know, when you live in Brooklyn, you have access to everything that New York has to offer, mm-hmm. including the New York Public Library. And, you know, as a children's book nerd, um, I, you know, would go there when they had exhibitions and talks and things like that. So there's a lot, there are a lot of opportunities for someone who's into children's books, for someone who's into illustration. But the transition was significantly softened by the fact that, well, first, I'm closer to family. Uh, Two, I have a lovely oasis of a home nested in the woods, even though every now and then it smells like mushrooms because we're in the mushroom capital of the world, by the way. That is a fact. Are they edible? Yes. And uh, it's the the closest town that people might recognize is Kennett Square, which is literally the mushroom capital of the world. Uh, and, but, but in this area, you know, the counties in and around Philadelphia, it is rich with illustration history. Mm -hmm. I mean, just a couple examples, like contemporary examples include like, you know, Matt Curtius, Gina Triplett, Martha Rich, Greg Pizzoli, Mm -hmm. uh, somebody by the name of David Wiesner. Mm -hmm. And if you're going with art history, I'm sure, you know, you've got your, Anna Whalen Betts, your Jesse Wilcox Smiths, the Plastic uh-huh. Club, uh-huh. Uh, a club founded by women artists and is in Philly. Uh, yes. Henry Osawa Tanner isn't from Philly. He's from Pittsburgh, but he studied in Philly. Uh-huh. And then so and then you have the Free Library of Philadelphia. Uh, yeah, and, and the Free Library, which you know we're we're not as large as New York Public, but I like to say that we try a little bit harder as a as a result. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be a, um, wouldn't that be a slogan for Philly uh, versus New York anyway? Well, we're not as large as New York, but we try a little bit harder. I, I, if we could if we could pitch anything that was like anti Wooder or anti John, I'd be for it. You know, let's yes. just yeah, let's let's steer out of the stereotype and and <laughs> into the proactive <laughs> attitude. Um, oh yeah, I I still don't really know what a John is. Is it just sort of like a another word for thing? Here's my personal theory of this is no one knows because I have known people for over 20 years who before five years ago never used it and now walk around calling everything a John and saying they've always done it. And I call BS. Yeah. Uh, I think it's I think it's the the birth of a, uh, a very good marketing campaign mm-hmm. that's tricked us all. So you're the Special Collections Curator for the Children's Literature Research Collection at the Free Library of Philadelphia. It's a crazy little special collection that I just love dearly. Um, It started back in the 1960s, and the then president of our library system said that he wanted to create the largest collection of children's literature in the nation. 
at the time, I think they were also fortunate. There were a lot of children's illustrators who were who were living locally that mm. that he knew that he worked with at the library system. So it wasn't completely beyond the realm. Uh, Carolyn Haywood was here, uh, Catherine Milhouse, you know, and uh, there was a librarian. Her name was Carolyn Field, the Pennsylvania State Award for Children's Literature from the Pennsylvania Library Association is named after her. Mm-hmm. She took it on her shoulders to start collecting and adding material. And she wrote letters to everyone. She was heavily involved in the American Library Association. So people started sending her their artwork, manuscripts, their paperwork. And we've amassed a a really nice repository of materials that um, are still growing and and are still available Mm -hmm. for the the general public. Well, you you described it as little, but uh, the reality is that it's one of the largest repositories for children's materials in the country. We're, we're, I think we're number two, although the DeGroman collection in Mississippi, mm-hmm. I think we're, I think we may run neck and neck. There's also the, uh, Curlin collection. Curlin is number one. They're, they're untouchable, man. They got, <laughs> they got university money behind them. It's <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, for we're, I think of the, of the big three, um, we, we're probably right in the middle. And, uh, again, we're, we're totally open as being part of a public library. So anyone has the ability to come in. You do not need a library card for the free library and you can make an appointment and use our materials. As you know, there are a lot of illustrators listening to this. And so some of them who are in the Philly area, I hope they do take advantage of that. Cause that sounds amazing. But what if you're not that's a good question. Um, if you're not, we have some of the materials that are available online. Before the pandemic, I would have been a little bit more hard-pressed to answer that question. As a result of the pandemic, if if there are a few positive things that came away from, from this last year and a half, we have a setup now where we can, we can do virtual appointments. We have uh, a camera designed. Um, you know, things are always changing in terms of where we are with with delta hopefully that'll be our last major variant but we're not going to stop doing online appointments it's something that uh if it gets more people in and more people using and appreciating the material then um yeah we'll keep going yeah i interviewed betsy bird a while back oh she's a tough act to follow you're doing quite well don't worry about that I'm the host, so literally anything anyone says is going to be is going to sound smart in comparison. But I doubt that. What I find interesting about librarians, I mean, my own personal experience is 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 varied, and 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 a lot of it has to do with um, my children. I mean, when I was in Brooklyn, the schools they went to had libraries; they did not have librarians. Mm-hmm. It was so sad. I mean, the middle, the elementary schools specifically had a really lovely. I mean, those are brand new schools, so the library was beautifully renovated and had plenty of space and areas for kids to read and all that every single time we went to that school the library was closed mm-hmm. what was the point it was a very big uh, area of contention for us because we kept you know pressing trying to press the principal to do something about it and it was always about money and time and staffing and all that kind of stuff we are now here in the Kennett school district area and the libraries are beautiful and fully staffed you know as they cut 
arts programs, as I as I see, you know, more and more arts programs getting cut from public schools and stuff. Mm-hmm. Same goes for library services. Am I right? Yeah, no, it, it it's true. Philadelphia. I mean, I can only speak to our city. I, the last time I looked, and this was pre-pandemic, I think we had eight school librarians across the the entire system, and it's it's very unfortunate. You know, if, if as as librarians, I think we're so willing to do things for anyone who walks through the door. You know, you need help. You know, finding the right tax forms. You need help. Um, trying to understand paperwork that the government has sent you or you know you just want to find a really good book um the thing that people could do to help us is to really stay on their elected representatives not just for public libraries you know we're we're chugging along although we could always use more money but really to to stay on the representatives about about having school librarians school librarians are really the cornerstone of education. They uh, they help children learn. Um, they help them understand the research process. They help them from a very early age on have an idea of how a book itself works, right? You know, like that index is not just there for fun. The table of contents is, is there to be a guide for you. And kids can come into public libraries all the time, but we our interactions are so limited based on the amount of time we see them. Mm-hmm. A librarian in a school sees can see kids for multiple hours a day. And we just, I don't think we're, we're uh, in that same position. So I, I really hope that more people start realizing that the, the arts educations, school libraries, those are things that are essential for this country to thrive. Right. Okay. So you're a librarian and, I, I, I'm assuming, I mean, you're, you're as, as Betsy sort of described it, wined and dined by publishers uh, or at least contacted by them in some way. And right. they want you to pay attention to their books. They want you to, through your system, purchase their books and get it into your libraries. Can you just describe, like, what what is that selection process? How do publishers get their books into your library? Sure, sure. I'm sure, I'm sure Betsy... Uh, gave a much more eloquent answer than than I'm going to. It's complicated. There are levels to this. We'll start at one extreme or the other. Uh, let's start with the the worst librarians because that's a very quick answer. The worst librarians, if you walk into their library, it is a shrine to their own interests and it has nothing to reflect the community. A, a good librarian is going to really have an ear to the ground to hear what their community needs. And a good librarian is going to be very cognizant that a community is never just one entity. There are a series of intersecting communities that are always using and needing the library. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to also realize that there are layers of communities that aren't using the library. And, you know, depending on budget, they're going to see how they can reach as many of the communities that are using the library and also save some money to try to find, take some educated guesses and pull in some things that for people that aren't using the library, because maybe that will slowly begin to attract them to come in. By the way, I should, I should mention that I'm, I'm 
viewing this all from a public librarian perspective. When you get into a school or an academic or a special librarian, they may think a little bit differently mm -hmm. along along these lines of who who their their patrons actually are. Right. If we're looking at the relationship between publishers and librarians, uh, it's very cordial. We're always very happy that, that publishers are willing to talk to us about their materials and tell us what we what they like, what they're what they're excited about, what they're interested in. But you have to very politely acknowledge that they're also there to move merchandise. And sometimes that book is stellar. Sometimes that book has gotten as far as it's going to go. Um, so you you really need to kind of keep your own counsel. And if you're considering what to purchase, you know, there are other, there are professional resources out there. Um, Kirkus, Hornbook, Booklist, School Library Journal, PW. where you have other librarians that are providing very concise reviews of materials. And you say, this aligns with what I think my community wants, or this is, I'm not interested in this, mm -hmm. uh, because by purchasing this title, I'm taking money away from another title that could be used and appreciated and loved. Right. It's it's really a balancing act. Yep. And I think most librarians, you know, will tell you that you never have enough money to reach as many people as you want to and buy every title that, that you need to. So you have to be very good at killing your darlings if you realize that even if it's a book you love, it may not be right for your collection. And that's when you have to order it through interlibrary loan <laughs> and, yeah. and, and wait a little bit longer for it to come in from someplace else. Right. When they contact you, it's usually through a, a week long sort of um, uh, conference of sorts. Yes. Yes. Although, you know, the, the modern age has, has changed it. You get, you get emails also right. where if you're, you're probably on a lot of mailing lists for a lot of publishing houses where they'll send you an update of what's, of what's coming out. Mm. Um, depending you may have a relationship as a result of conferences where you can email someone and say, Hey, you know, what's, what's looking good. Like what, what do you think is really, is really, um, stellar right. or, you know, what, what do you think just the marketing people didn't pick up, but what do you think is a really excellent read? What's interesting about this timing of this interview is that you're coming in after a, uh, marketing specialist. <laughs> Oh, goodness, am I, I am I going to get in trouble with? Uh, no, what's no, 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 no. <laughs> a lot of publishers for this? Not at all. The opposite. She said, you know, her job is obviously as a marketing specialist for publishing is you know to make as much noise as humanly possible for the book, mm -hmm. and cut through the noise of all the other uh, marketing noise for other books. And mm -hmm. if that doesn't work, there's still the school and library purchases. Right. So it's like a not a last resort by any means, but it's another way the book can continue to, to live if the marketing strategy initially doesn't, you know, pay dividends. So that's going to be an interesting uh, combo of, of chats. Um, killing your darlings. Yeah. Selecting yeah. books. It's ew, ew, it's it's so difficult. You know, when I was when I was a children's librarian and I was for about 10 years, I did a stint of academia in between. But there are times when you're looking down a book list and you say to yourself, all I want to read right now 
are fairy tales or all I want to read right now are beekeeping books. Mm-hmm. And I am very cognizant from looking at how things circulate in my library that no one else in this neighborhood <laughs> cares about beekeeping. Right. So that's, that so, leads me perfectly to the next question. And that is, where do you come in? Do you come oh, in? Do librarians own... Um, when does a librarian's view on what... Uh, it's not the right wording here. Deserves to be in the library and what doesn't trump what the patrons or what the visitors of the library want? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. I think in a situation like that, as I mentioned, you have the communities that are using your library, mm-hmm. but you hopefully are cognizant of the communities that aren't using your library. So sometimes you have to take a gamble and say, I have noticed that, you know, we have, you know, these groups of people coming in, but we're not seeing this group. And if you are walking around your, your neighborhood or you're walking around your community, you know, you recognize, you definitely recognize the people who you know, mm-hmm. but then you also keep an eye on the people that you don't know. And that's when you have to say, um, okay, I am suddenly cognizant that the population that uses the library is primarily, um, we have a large elderly population. We have very young school age African-American population that's coming in. But I'm seeing a lot of, um, let's say, Vietnamese immigrants that have come to the area. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's a, a refugee program that's going on. And you have to say to yourself, well, maybe I need to start buying material that both speaks to the immigrant experience, if you, you know, don't have a lot of it, but also like, let's, let's buy some material in, in Vietnamese. Let's see if we can get a, a community member to volunteer to come in and help us arrange it and set it up in some way that will be, will be welcoming. Right. And what about books that the creators have been, um, you know, either found of uh, having done something untoward uh, or, you know, perhaps have uh, experienced some sort of criticism uh, laid down upon them or upon some decision that they've made for, here's an example, Dr. Seuss. I don't have to share, but I'm sure you know that yes. he's, uh, his books have received quite, uh, quite a bit of criticism uh, with respect to race. Mm-hmm. Uh, several of his books, I think I can't, the title is going to escape me exactly. I saw it on Mulberry Street. Is that the title? And to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. There you go. Well, it's yeah. now deemed racist, uh, has uh, racist imagery in it. Um, and so you you see that. Mm-hmm. You also know that there are Dr. Seuss, other Dr. Seuss books that aren't, that don't have racist imagery. Mm-hmm. Do you just, what do you do? Well, it's a good question. Dr. Seuss is a great example because I think that there was a lot of fanfare for not a lot of reason. Um, the books that were pulled from that his that his publishers have decided to stop publishing, mm-hmm. I don't think met the qualifications of what children today are looking for. They have, as you say, there's 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 a, a racist message that that goes in all of them. They're they're not something that parents want to read. So if they're not going to produce them, that's that's fine. You know, it's not every not every book is going to live on for eternity. Sometimes things have a, a message that hits in the moment 
And when we look back on it, we say that message is no longer relevant. You know, it's, it's fine. You know, thing, things come in. There's, there's room on the shelf for new titles and if old titles no longer are, are interesting, there's, there's no reason to keep them around. Everyone is very complicated. You know, um, uh, Dr. Seuss definitely was. He he had a lot of opinions that are, in some ways, still valid, like the Lorax, where he was talking about the importance of um, being environmentally conscious. And you have other books like um, A Day at the Zoo, where it really portrays a harmful message that should I, I don't think that it's valid. Right. And each book, you need to evaluate each book on its on its own merits. You can't, and I don't think it's fair to just say Dr. Seuss as a whole, you know, it's your canon in or is it out. There's some that are worth keeping because they're still, they're still valued by children. There are other ones that have been forgotten and it, it's sad, but that's when they wander off to live in a repository, like, you know, Mm-hmm. our children's literature research collection or the Carlin collection or the DeGrumman. So they're available for, for researchers to, to look at and, and understand points in history, but they're not valuable to kids. So let's move them out. What if the community asks for a certain author who is popular that you know is, or that you believe to be, or that you've seen has been um, essentially identified as somebody who's um, what's the word problematic, problematic. Yeah. right jinx you owe me a coke um, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's again that this goes this goes down to being a good librarian isn't isn't about wanting to promote the books you love it's about buying material that your community values. So there are a lot of times when you're looking down the list and you buy things that align with your ideals, you buy things that don't align with your ideals, you look at the numbers to see how they're, how they're tracking. Um, If you know, if they're being checked out, if they're not being checked out, if it's something that's a hot button issue or, or a topic that, you really want to engage the community in, you know, you see about, about bringing in someone to do a program to, to talk about, or, or a group of people to do a panel to talk, to talk about the issues. Uh, libraries are places to, to learn and to grow and learning and growing sometimes is, is challenging. Sometimes it makes you feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. and that doesn't, it's the same for librarians too. Has the current uh, conversation over the past several years now on on things like race, sex, gender, identity, all of it. Mm-hmm. Has that made your job easier or more difficult or hasn't changed? Well, you know, since I'm running a, a, the, a special collection, I'm, I'm in this weird little cul-de-sac. So it, it's very different than a public librarian, but I will say that all of the conversations, race, identity, diversity, they've made my job a lot more fun. Um, I've never thought about them as being harder, easier. I think it's a lot more enjoyable because you really have to 
look at what's being published and you say to yourself, okay, what for me, I'm, I'm buying books that are going to be useful now, but that hopefully will also be useful in 500 years when people are looking at this point in history, what is going to be something that will be valuable? And I, I go across my lists and I, I pick the ones I want and I look at how much money I have. And then I say, okay, which, which ones are, are really going to make an impact? How much, how much bang for my buck am I going to get out of these titles? But it, it is very different than, than a public library shelf. I'm collecting sometimes really stellar examples of children's materials, but sometimes I'm also happily buying the duds because I want to have an example of, you know, what's a really bad children's book that <laughs> that someone will be interested in? Who, what's a, a children's book who has some serious fatal flaws? Because when an author or illustrator or a group of either comes in, it's something that we can pull for an educational moment. Sure. And no, I will not admit any of those duds <laughs> on a on a recorded podcast. Oh, I was just gonna ask you that. I, I'm actually my brain is like on overdrive right now, thinking of like, oh gosh, what what could be a dud? I'm wondering. Those, those are those are non-recorded. But you know, there there are times I will I will speak generally where let's say from illustration point of view, um, someone makes a choice that the illustration you 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 realize that they were not listening to the author's text or they did something where it's fighting the language in a way that doesn't make sense. So you, you realize that that conversation is not taking place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from the author's side, I think that there are a lot of books that people don't read aloud. And that's unfortunate because sometimes things make sense on paper when you're writing them in your voice but when you read it aloud or you get someone else to read it aloud, the your phrasing suddenly shifts or there there could be a um, double meaning that you weren't expecting mm-hmm. in there that could really kill something. Yep. You said in an interview that children's literature dictates the moral compass of the next generation of leaders. Mm-hmm. Yes. Does it have to be always the moral compass, though? Well, I'll, you know, I'll say this. I... I don't there's a there's a terrible piece of musical theater that <laughs> I I love cats um in the in the 1970s Catherine Hepburn played Coco Chanel um Catherine Hepburn was not one of the great singers of of her day especially at that point in her life mm-hmm. um if you can find a CD of of this soundtrack it is simply amazing for all the wrong reasons um, but there's a line in there that really resonates with me that, uh, she said that the, allegedly the Coco Chanel character said that the revolution begins in fashion. And I've desperately have looked and I've never been able to see if this was a real line that Coco Chanel said. I, I don't know if it's true, but I think if we agree that the revolution begins in fashion, the revolution is recorded in children's literature. Because no matter what, you are looking at the grand conversation of society in children's books. Everything that we want children to be 
is in those pages or in those illustrations. And we really get a snapshot of what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable, what's idealized, what are uh, conversations we're not having because they're, they're, they're not published there. And I, I, I stand by that. It's, it's a great place to see any society look at what their kids are reading. Speaking of illustrations, mm-hmm. I mean, you see illustration all the time. New, old, coming in, going out. From your perspective, mm-hmm. what would be one bit of advice that you would like to share with illustrators directly? That's a that's tough to find a one catch-all advice for everybody but i think for any illustrator i think it's always valuable to look at what is be what's on the market what's being what's being published i have noticed what i consider to be a flaw among people who are new to illustration where they come in and the first thing they want to look at are illustrations that they remember or that their children read. So you're looking at books that are 20 years old or maybe older. And it's a different use of white space. It's a different use of where the text falls on the page. It's still valid. It's still lovely. But I think that, you know, you see, see where the world is at this moment. And if you're not sure, then that's when you have the conversation with, you know, your local librarian or who you're, who you're dealing with to see like, what, what's really circulating? Like what's, what's resonating with children right now and, and see what impact that has on, on what you want to do. To learn more about the free library, visit freelibrary.org slash CLRC. If you enjoyed our conversation, please share it with your friends, subscribe to the podcast, and provide a positive rating and review. Become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash illustration D-E-P-T. In return, you will receive our soft enamel pin, a reusable discount code for 10% off, and access to patron-only episodes we're calling Extra Credit. This podcast is produced by the Illustration Department, a global leader in online education for illustrators. Visit us at illustrationdept.com for class offerings, testimonials, the alumni showcase, the podcast show notes, our forum, the bookshop, and more. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.